1 to 8 today, and I actually think it's a really good setup as we come to the table of the Lord and we really think about a biblical social justice. In other words, when the church acts like family. When the church doesn't just say we're a community, we've got all these beautiful words we use now. Oh, we're a community of faith. We're a family here at our church. Well, what does that look like? Anybody can claim it, but what does it look like in real life? And to begin somewhat on a bit of a downer, you you see, my experience, especially in the context of Newfoundland, which even though I told you that probably less than 22, 2100 people are attending a church this morning throughout this city where they're actually going to hear the gospel. There are many churches in this city. You might be shocked to know there are 72 churches in this city. And in fact, of the 220,000 people in St. John's, almost 90% of them would claim to be Christian. They'd claim it. In other words, religion is very cultural in Newfoundland. Very cultural. It's ingrained in who you are. My mother, the generation just older than, than me, uh, we, I was born in St. John's but raised in Harbor Grace, and uh, my mom can still give her a last name and she can tell you what religion you were based on your last name. And the town of Harbor Grace, when it still had the railway tracks, literally, the railway track split the town in two in the sense if you lived on, on below it, you were a certain denomination, and if you lived above it, you were another denomination. And we had religious school systems and all these types of things. But for many people, you see, going to church or thinking in terms of church or what they have known of church, tragically, amounts to nothing more than walking into a building and a room on Sunday, singing some songs, give a little money, hear a few prayers, listen to a few verses, then comes the sermon, and then it's time to leave and simply start living your life in your world, with your stuff, with your friends, in your little circle of influence. That's what religion looks like to a lot of people in the world today. But how long and how often do we even here at Calvary come to church and play it safe? We stay within our little network of friends, like even our church, and we're not a big church. If I took the sum total of everybody in this room and everybody downstairs and everybody upstairs, we're probably in the neighborhood of around 100 people, give or take. But are there people here that if you've been coming, you still don't know them? You see them, but you don't know their name? You don't know their story? We, we, and it's not because you're mean. I mean, there's a legitimate reason for that, right? I mean, sometimes you might go, should I interfere with other people's lives? They don't know me. I don't know them. And then there's the whole, what about people's privacy? And what if I screw it up when I go and try to be funny and I say something really awkward and stupid and there's that weird little awkward moment when we're all kind of staring at each other and it's just weird, But let me ask you on the flip side of that coin, how do you like to be treated? I received an email back a couple of weeks ago when I was at the conference down in Louisville from someone who recently has started attending our church and something happened in their life. And this person, well, well into their 20s, uh, Facebooked me actually and said, Pastor Steve, I want you to know that something happened and I'm so thankful. And it is the first time in my life I know what it means to be in a family and in community in a church. And that thrilled me. But I've also had other people 
And in fact, when I did my Back to the Bible series for the radio, I've had many, many people tell me, and as someone that's practically been born in the church and been raised around an evangelical church since I was five, many people have told me many horror stories about being a part of church. I've been hurt by the church. And I've heard people say, I've been loved by the church. And I stand before you as someone who can say, on any given Sunday, I've been hurt by people in the church. I can give you any number of stories. But I've also been loved, loved by people in the church, loved by the church, loved by Christ in ways I can't even begin to describe. You see, how do you think people in church should really, I mean, really treat each other? How, how should we really treat each other? I mean, if I were to pass out little five, uh, three by five cards and give you all a pencil and say, write down how you would describe what does a healthy, loving, working, united church look like? What would you write down? Would you even know where to begin? Would it, be in, would it seem like, well, I'm writing this down, but this is never going to happen? And again, I want to qualify it. My father, one of the best pieces of advice my father ever gave me was, Stephen, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll wreck it. Because a lot of people are looking for a perfect church. But again, I don't know who quoted this, but a church is not supposed to be a place of stained glass saints. Church should really be a hospital, a place where sick people come who know they're sick and need help. And even those that are quote-unquote healed, we know what we've been healed from, and so we're only too glad to come back to the hospital every week and help other sick people find the healing we have found. One of my favorite sayings, and if you've been here, you're going to find out that I've got these sayings, and I keep saying them. D.A. Carson said, if you're a Christian, if you truly know Jesus, if you believe in him, you are simply beggars who have found food who want to tell other beggars where to find it. And that's the facts. Do we really understand and believe that any and all true followers of Jesus Christ, now listen to this, are our brothers and sisters that we are truly and eternally a family? Yet I hear a lot of people in church saying, well, I know I got to live with him or her forever, but I'm just going to try to avoid them till we get to forever. Again, I once heard someone, a dear friend of mine, he was the best man at my wedding, preached a sermon uh, about church unity, and he said, how do porcupines mate? Very carefully. And often in church, can it not feel like we're doing the porcupine dance? That heavenly sandpaper with each other? Do we really understand, though, that if you're a Christian, if I'm a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, if the object of your faith is Jesus, then that means we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And just like I couldn't pick my family, we can't pick our spiritual family. We are who God's called us to be. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let me go a step further. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite pastor that I love to read and I love to listen to, uh, not listen to him, but read his sermons, he once said this, as soon as a man or woman has found Christ, he or she, she begins to find others. Is, is, is that true of us? If, if you have found Jesus, the very first thing you want to do is go show him to others. Or is Jesus very much like a lot of other religions in the world? You've got him. You've got your little place for him at the house. 
You've got your little Bible. You come to church, and you, but it's relatively yours. And he's not really known to everybody that you work with or maybe your family members, your neighbors, your co-workers. So that's why I want to go to 1 Timothy 5. And I want to read verses 1 to 8 today. And after I'm done, again, I'm going to ask you what I've done the three times I've read it, is I want you to think about what's the number one subject that Paul is trying to get Timothy to understand. What's the number one thing that he wants Timothy to get, he wants the church at Ephesus to get, and he wants for us here today to get. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writing to Timothy says this, Timothy, do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father. Now, what I want you to do is apply do not rebuke to the rest, okay? So do not rebuke uh, um, younger men, but treat them as brothers. Older women, don't rebuke them, but treat them as mothers. Younger women, don't rebuke them, but encourage them. Younger women, as sisters, and then notice, in all purity. Okay, now he keeps going. It seems like now, that's the header. Now here's the... Here's the, the logistics of this. Verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that's the children or grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents or even their grandparents. Now here's the reason Paul says this. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, I want to make sure because... Brother Daniel read it in Hebrews chapter 11. I want to make sure everybody understands, even before I finish the passage, every man and woman in this room, you will never make God love you more. There is nothing you can do, nothing you can sacrifice, no way you can serve, no way you can deny yourself. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. The flip side of that, there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. He loves you because God is love. He loves you. So it, it's not predicated. His love upon you is not predicated on you. It comes from Him. But the Bible does tell us we can please or displease our Heavenly Father. That's why Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. In our passage here, he says, if, if children or grandchildren make return to their parents or grandparents, notice, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. The reason that's pleasing is because to do it, you've got to act by faith. You have to exercise your faith in the object of Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, and notice this, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, this seems to be the qualifying statement that Paul is saying, a functioning church, these are the types of people you want to look out for and you are going to invest in, you're going to care for, protect, love, provide for all of these things. But now verse 6, but she, being a widow, who is self-indulgent, is dead even while she lives. That's a harsh statement. we got to unpack that a little bit, don't we? Verse 7, command these things, Timothy, as well, 
so that they, that's the church, may be without reproach, but, now notice he's going back again to the very first thing, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his or her household, now get this, he or she has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now I want you to walk through this. What jumped out at you in those eight verses? I mean, a bunch of stuff jumps out at me, but what jumped out at you? Asking again, right? The song we just sang, Speak, O Lord. Now, likely the word widow probably jumped out at you. It's there a lot in the passage. And if you're like me, you've likely wondered, dude, what does all this mean? How does this apply to me or to us or to Calvary? How do we know if we're doing it? Have you ever wondered as well, when we come to passages like this, ones that are a little harder to figure out. Sometimes you read it and go, well, that doesn't seem to apply to me. What's your reaction to those types of passages? I asked you this two weeks ago. Do you blow them off? Do you ignore them? Do you simply say, well, I think this is what it means, and now I'll move on because I won't take the time to figure that out? And the other trap that we can fall into verses like this is to focus on the big part of the passage while not viewing the entire passage through the filter of what was first said. Because I would contend that all of chapter 5 needs to be seen through what is said in verses 1 and 2. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. Now take that mindset and filter that through all of chapter 5. And so we want to make sure we don't lose the forest for the tree, so to speak. So when you look at verses 1 and 2, you see what is the number one thing. Paul wants Timothy as he leads and what he wants the whole church that we should be thinking about. That's namely this, how we relate to each other. And if I could put it in a summary, using the words of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 16, it's he or she who lays down their life for others. What does it profit a man or a woman if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And when you understand what you get in the person of Jesus, then it's very easy for you, very easy for you then to lay out your life for other people. So number one in verses one and two, as we get to the nitty-gritty of this, number one, God tells the church to be a real family. Not just claim to be, but to actually be a real family. So we want to take it as we come to our family meal today, what does it mean to be a real family? Paul gives Timothy a blueprint for how he personally is to relate to every person in the church and how we're to relate to each other. But I want you to step back, and I think, again, I said this. Do you remember John Lennon, that, that famous Beatle, when he wrote his song, Imagine? Imagine if all the people, and that was a, a real famous song. Well, imagine, if you will, with me, what a church who acts like a real family would look like. A family where a man loves God and his wife. Imagine a church family where a woman loves God and her husband. Imagine, if you will, a church where a set of parents love God together and their kids together. Imagine, if you will, a family, a church family where the kids in that church know God, are taught about God, and see that teaching put into practice in the lives of everybody that makes up that church. Imagine a family where God is center, where the Bible is read and followed. 
Imagine a church where forgiveness and confession, where honesty and trust, where truth and love and respect and the good of each other are not just ideal cliches, but are actually sought after, defended, and even protected. What would that look like in a gathering of people that called themselves a church? See, Paul wants Timothy to see his leadership in terms of appropriateness and in terms of example. But most importantly, and every one of you here need to realize this, to be in a relationship with Christ, to be in a relationship with each other, is to think in terms of relationship. We are in a relationship. Think of all the ways the New Testament talks about the church, how it's described. The New Testament describes the church as a body, in Ephesians chapter 4, it's called a building in 1 Corinthians sorry, chapter 3. It's called a temple in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What else is it called? It's also called a family here in Timothy. The church is talked of in terms of growing and maturing, of being gifted and created by God. The church is said to be the bride of Christ, loved by Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, you summarize so much of this, and this is kind of Paul simmering down some major passages like Galatians chapter 5, verses 20 to 26, often what we call the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, all of these types of things. What about the 30 one-another commands of the New Testament? Love one another, pray for one another, bear with one another, uh, 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 stir each other on to love and good deeds, confront one another, all of these things. That's a family. If you're a part of a family, you know that that's what it's about. The one thing my wife and I have learned is as we have three children and uh, we have two boys and a girl and they're at different phases of life, it, it, there's times when it's, it's love and there's times when it's confrontation. Again, I've used this expression, right? I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis who said, having a, a child is wanting, or being a parent is wanting to hug and strangle your child simultaneously. I forget again, I think it was Mark Twain who said, if you have a teenager from 13 to uh, 16, put him in a barrel with a hole in it, and when he turns 17, plug the hole. Okay? I mean, so you know what this is like as parents. You know that family is a series of happy, sad, ups, downs, all of the things that go with that. But here we see that we are called... We are called, we are commanded to respond to God's love for us by responding in love towards everyone in our lives. Everyone, especially those who are Christians because we're family. And is that true of you? Is that true of me? Whether it's family to enemies, from church folks to co-workers, whether you're an employee or an employee or whether you are rich or poor, regardless of your gender or your culture or your upbringing or your language, your past or your experience, listen folks, once you've met Jesus, you have been changed. And if you can say, I know Jesus, but I'm very much the same. I don't know how that's possible. How can you meet Jesus? and not be changed in the way you think, 
the way you act, and the way you respond to circumstances. Once you've met Jesus, in fact, read this book. People who read this book and really met Jesus were profoundly changed. I didn't say perfect, but profoundly changed. So I want you to stop again. I want you to ask, have you been changed by Jesus? Amen. I, uh, now I, I even woke up Eldon today. That's great. It's not just Mary. Eldon's woke up now. All right, Paul says, explains to Timothy how to relate to each demograph in the church. He starts with older men. He says, Paul says, look at it, verse, uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 1. Paul says, do not rebuke. Now, these two verbs govern this passage, rebuke but encourage, all right? So the first one is rebuke, and it's a strong term in the Greek, all right? It means to, uh, refers to harsh or a violent rebuke. It means don't rail on an older person. Don't humiliate them. And it appears only here in the New Testament, though there's a related word that looks back in in 1 Timothy 3.3, where it describes an elder who is not given over to physical violence, So here it's verbal rather than physical. So no matter what, a sinning Christian, in fact, nobody that you know in your life as a Christian should be hammered with harsh words simply because you think they're wrong. That is sinful. That goes against Ephesians chapter 4. We're not supposed to use words that tear down, but rather those that build up and are used for edifying. And I'll give you an example. This, This one I have lived out because... My dad and I are both pastors, and in fact, it was interesting that in my life, as I came here to Calvary, I visited here uh, with my family a few years ago when we were vacationing in Newfoundland, and at that time, your service started, I think, at 10 a.m., and um, we came here first, and I met the pastor at the time, Was I think his name was Gary Stewart. And uh, I was talking to Gary, and I said, now, Gary, listen, we're here. We wanted to come join you guys in worship. We're visiting down from Prince Edward Island, but uh, don't be offended and don't think anything's gone wrong if we slip out at about 5 to 11. And the reason being was my dad happened to be here in the city as well, and he had been invited to preach at another church. And because my dad's a pastor and I'm a pastor, we don't often cross paths on Sundays. We don't usually see each other on the weekends. And this was a very rare time that I was going to get to sit under the preaching of my father. So we worshiped with you guys here, and then we slipped out, and we went to this other church, and I got to hear my dad get up and preach. And my dad preached out of Psalm 139. And I love my dad. My dad and I are, are, are very opposite. I am very much like my mother. And if, as they come and visit and you get to know them, you will realize I look like my mother. I talk like my mother. I act like my mother. My dad, very different. Quiet, all these types of things. But my dad preached that Sunday, and I was there as a proud son, and I had my book open, and I was taking notes, and I was listening. And I have to be honest, my dad didn't preach very well that Sunday. In fact, there were times I actually thought he got it dead wrong. And I was like, what do I do now? This is my dad. And I love him. And I respect him in so many things in my life that I owe, I owe to my dad. And so that happened on a Sunday. And about Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, my dad and I were together. And I just said to my dad, I said, Dad, listen, can you and I go for lunch? And can we just, just me and you, I just want to have a dad-son time. And so we went and we met at the McDonald's down there on Topsail Road that's just up from what was Chester Da. I think it's Rona now. And we sat down together over very healthy Big Macs and those wonderful fries that are very nutritious for the body. 
and um, sipped some wonderfully aged Coke. Um, it was just a glorious meal. And um, I'm sitting there with my dad, who I love and respect, and I'm like, how do, I, how do I do this? And I remember this passage. And so I have to be honest, because it was so weird how, how it happened, because my dad said to me while we're eating, what would you think of my sermon on Sunday? And so he even brought it up. Now, I didn't sit there and go, you know what, Dad? That, like, you laid an egg. Like, dude, did you ever punt that sermon? Like, dude, I can't believe people stayed and listened to it. Like, I'm surprised God didn't strike you dead. You didn't obviously do your homework. You got up there and you yelled for 50 minutes. I did not say any of those things. I said, Dad, you know what? It was an honor as your son to listen to you preach. But I said, do you think we could go to the passage and again and walk through your outline? And could you tell me how you came to these things? And can I show you some of the notes that I took? And for an hour and a half, my dad and I just walked through Psalm 139. And I was busy. As he said, show me what you showed me and what you saw. And I asked Dad this. And, and we were going away. And, and of course, because I'm my mom's personality, um, I kind of took over the conversation and I was all excited about everything I wrote and was flipping this way and that way. And all of a sudden I realized Dad was very quiet. And I look up and Dad's in the middle of McDonald's and tears are just streaming down his face. I'm like, oh, jumps, Dad, Dad, Dad. He's like, no, 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 no. He said, son, I've I just been asking the Lord to give me the grace to study Scripture more effectively and I'm thankful that I have a son who will come and talk to me about God's word and want me to get it right like I have wanted you to get it right as I've raised you. And I was closer to my dad that day than I had been in a long time. And that's what it means not to rebuke. I didn't have to rail on him. I didn't have to tell him he was stupid. I didn't have to tell him that, listen, you're old and you don't know how to do it. That's disrespectful. That's not encouraging but rather I took him and said, let's go to the Word of God and let's study this together. Let's do what's right together. Dad, I love you. You are my, my earthly idol that I look up to. You are a gift from God to me. And I want to I live up to everything that you've ever taught. I know my own father-in-law once, we had a bit of a disagreement about uh, some things in, in Deb's family. And I remember when I got married to Debbie, on the day of our wedding, my father-in-law shook my hand and he said, you treat her right. Don't fear God, fear me. And he meant it. But I remember a few years later, and in fact, it's funny that Nathan and Shelby are nieces here, and Shelby's like a daughter to us. She lived with us and met her husband while she lived with us, and they're visiting with us, and so this is a special week. But at their wedding, there was a disagreement in the family, and I remember taking my father-in-law aside and saying, Dad, I disagree with you here, but listen, you told me on my wedding day I had to protect and provide and cherish my wife, your daughter, and that's what I'm doing today, even if that means I have to disagree with you. That's what that looks like. It wasn't that I told him he was an idiot. It wasn't that I said, you're dead wrong and embarrassed him in front of a whole bunch of people. I took him aside and we talked. And Paul says, this is how Timothy is to talk to older men and younger men, treat them as brothers. Now, often we get that image, and I don't know about you because I'm an only child, but I do have two sons two years apart who lived in the same room from basically birth onward. And their definition of treating young men as brothers is to pound the snot out of each other daily. That's not what Paul is talking about, okay? 
He's talking about that brotherly love, that patience, that sense of, 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 of compassion, that desire to say, no, as I win, you win. As, as I go, you go. We succeed together. We fail together. We dre- no one's going to be left behind. We're going to have each other's back and front, and we're going to love on each other. And Paul says to Timothy, treat older men with dignity and love and compassion and respect. Treat younger men as your brother, as, as you want them to know what you know, and you want to know what they know and you want to study God together and know him better. Treat older women as mothers. Don't disrespect older women. As you're going to learn, God has a lot to say about widows. In fact, if you read the opening of your New Testament and if you read how the resurrected Jesus is mostly introduced to the world, it is through women. Older women. Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. And then you'll notice he says, in all purity. You see, folks, listen. When he says encourage, that means to admonish or entreat or appeal. It could be best maybe translated strengthen. So it doesn't mean that you don't confront Remember, those of you that took our marriage course on Sunday nights, grace, giving someone grace, is not letting stuff go. It's not pretending something didn't happen. It's, it's, It's rather saying, no, I will confront you with your sin, but I will never leave your side, and we will walk through this together. The greatest sometimes act of love you can do is to actually tell someone, I love you, but you're wrong. This is going to hurt you. This course of action is going to not only hurt you, but hurt others. And this is why we need to do this. The scriptures also are a source of strength. Romans 15.4. In fact, the preacher in California, John MacArthur, says this. As the word of God and the spirit of God strengthen believers, so must we come to their aid when they sin. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, addresses this, where Paul says to the Galatians, brethren, meaning they're collectively men and women together, even if a man is caught, notice this, in any trespass, not in some, not only in the minor ones, no, in any trespass, you who are spiritual, notice this, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, Look at each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And notice this, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Do you realize this? That fulfilling the law of Christ here for Paul is not a list of do. He's bear one another's burdens. Love each other. Care for each other. See, confronting sin in the church is not to be done by violently attacking fallen brothers and sisters. But rather... Sinning saints must be lovingly confronted, then strengthened, then encouraged towards holy living. It was meant to be restorative, redemptive, remedial confrontation. It's one that says, I'm going to tell you this because I love you and I don't want you to hurt yourself or those around you. And so Paul talks about younger men and older women and younger women. But you'll notice it says, in all purity. Now, I would submit to you that verses 1 and 2 should not be just something we imagine, but something we should be working at being. Let's not just imagine. Let's actually be this. And for Timothy to accomplish his relationship to women as he was supposed to, that was going to take a group effort, because you'll notice it says, in all purity. I can't tell you how many times. I'm an only child. 
I don't have siblings, so I live very vicariously through my kids' siblings' uh, interactions. I trust my wife a lot. She's one of four sisters. But I love the church as my family. And I cannot tell you how many times I've had men and women both when we've been able to come alongside them and intervene in their lives, whether it's been single women or married women or, or, or abused women or abused men or teenagers or college kids, how many times we, we intervene and we love on them and we walk through their junk and their mess and I get emails and Facebook calls or messages or, or letters written or phone calls like the one I got two weeks ago from someone in this church who said, this is the first time I felt like I was a part of a family. Do you know the joy it is for the women of 21st century Canada to be able to come to a church and not be ogled or objectified and to be loved and respected and cared for and treated with dignity and respect and to know that they're just loved, wanted, and needed? You know what it's like for a church where men can be godly men? And being a godly man doesn't mean you can lift 500 pounds and you grunt testosterone. A godly man is someone who's meek and gentle and kind, who knows how to follow Christ. That's what a godly man looks like. And this is what God has called us to. But next, I want you to realize now, God calls the church to be sure families act like the family. So number one is, the church is supposed to act like a real family. But the second point in verses 3 and 4 and 7 and 8 is that the families that make up the church family, they need to be real families. All right? So this is what he's really saying. So Paul makes it clear that if we're going to think of the whole church family, he needs to, we need to explain now how do we look out for those who are in need. So our attention, he says, our protection, our care, our love, our respect, our honor. Paul is going to single out one particular group, widows. Now you need to realize, contextually, in the first century, widows were a segment of society that were the most vulnerable. They had no social net. They had no standing. And you might be quite surprised, as I was when I studied for this, how I'm still surprised. You've talked to Steve Daw about this. Any one of my elders says, I've been studying this. I've been gobsmacked, to use my Newfoundland Scottish-Irish expressions, at just how much the Bible has to say about widows and, by the way, orphans. But when we look at this, I want us to notice how Paul takes what was said in verses 1 and 2 and applies it to everyone in the church. So notice verses 3 and 4. Notice verse 3 and 4. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 7 and 8. Notice what it says. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So I want you to get that because I find these two passages amazing just when you think about verses 1 and 2. Don't rebuke, but encourage. Because this is some very unpolitically correct stuff being said here. This is pretty direct. This goes against the world's definition of love because these words are confronting. In fact, these words are even accusing. These words make statements. They, more than statements, they make massive assertions about the heart and spiritual condition of men and women. 
But I want you to consider what's said here as it fits and agrees with verses 1 and 2. And keep thinking back. If you want to do this in your homework this afternoon or this week, read Ephesians 4 and Galatians 5 and Colossians chapter 1 and, and sorry, Philippians chapter 2. And you're going to see a pattern. You see, when he says they're worse than an infidel, you are worse than an unbeliever. Do you know that Aristotle, that great philosopher of ancient history, he said this, it should be thought in the matter of food, we should help our parents before all others since we owe our nourishment to them. A man must starve before seeing his parents starve. Aristotle said that. He didn't even claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus dealt this with the Pharisees. The great passage of this is found in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. Let me read them for you. Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes, that's the guys who thought they were experts in the law, come to Jerusalem, to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break, notice this, the tradition of the elders? Okay? And they said, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. So they were obviously typical dudes. They didn't wash their hands when they eat. Most of these guys were fishermen. I've seen where fishermen's hands are. I don't know if washing would help. All right? But these guys didn't keep up with traditions of the elders. They just ate. Now notice, it says, he answered them, well, why do you break the commandment? They accused him, his disciples, of breaking the tradition of the elders. Jesus counters with, well, why do you guys break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? He says, For God commanded, and he quotes the seventh commandment, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die, quoting Deuteronomy. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. And in fact, in Matthew, you hear this word, Corban. So this was how these guys would go to mom and dad and say, listen, mom and dad, I've got a nice little nest egg. I know you're needy, but I have dedicated that to God, so I can't help you. And that's how they kind of looked spiritual and didn't got out on their responsibility. That's what they did. And he says, um, but imagine you say what, but he says, but if anyone says, uh, would you, ha, sorry, but if you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now notice this. You hypocrites. And for Steve Da, exclamation point. Steve Da thinks I overuse my exclamation points, so I like to show Steve Da when the Bible uses them, all right? So even Jesus goes, you hypocrites, all right? That's what he's doing there. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Paul is saying, listen, if you claim to be a Christian, if you're going to act like a church family in the church, but you know you have people in your biological family and you're not loving them and you're not taking care of them and you're not treating them with dignity and respect, don't dishonor me by claiming to be Christians when you can't even act like it with your own family. We'll never be a strong church family if we have weak families who make up the church. That's not the way it should be. Nofel Stanton puts it this way. Paul made it clear that our religion must first of all be put into practice at home by caring for our families. 
We should be willing to repay parents and grandparents. After all, he writes, they brought us into the world and also brought us up. They cared for us, provided for us, loved us, forgave us, and educated us. They encouraged us to walk, to eat, to talk, and expand into the broader world. Our parents sacrificed significantly for us. They were willing to be inconvenienced for us. They took care of us when we were sick and in need. Consequently, it is only proper that we do the same for them when they are in need. So Paul says it's of first priority, and you'll notice it says in verse 4, it's something that must be learned. It says, first let them learn to show godliness. I'm not saying that this is going to happen like this. You've got to be taught this. You've got to be discipled in this. How often do we see in the Christian life, it's when we are developing Christ-like habits. Paul said in Philippians, work out your own salvation. How many times in 1 Timothy have we heard about exercise your faith, strive, practice. And so kids and grandkids are to learn to care. And by the way, for all of you who are parents here today, how many of you would, would say, you know what, since I've been a parent, I haven't learned a thing. I am a much more informed parent now that I have a 22 and a 20-year-old and a soon-to-be 14-year-old than when I was past the first one. Because my thoughts when I was past the first one was, he looks like a lizard. What do I do with him? He was 10 days over. He did. He looked like a lizard. He was 10 days overdue. He was molting his skin. He was really ugly. I have learned so much about that boy who is about to get married in October. And I know so much more about parenting now because I've had to learn. I've had to make mistakes. I've had to go ask for help. I've had to, had to strive through and push through in fear and trembling, wondering, Lord, is this going to work? How is this going to look? I've had to do that. So kids and grandkids, as your parents get older, as your grandparents get older, and you're thinking about this, and Debbie and I are at that stage of life. I'm an only child. I'm all that mom and dad have. But my mom and dad know I will take care of them no matter what because they're my mom and dad. Now, you might be saying, hey, Steve, listen, get out of your cloudy world there because your parents or my parents weren't like yours growing up and they definitely, definitely didn't fit the bill of what you just talked about. I grew up without a dad. I grew up without a mom. My mom and dad were abusive. My mom and dad weren't there. I grew up in a foster home, whatever it might be. Your, your parents didn't do these types of things. Okay. But step back and think through God and the gospel and how you should still respond even to parents that were less than ideal. Because can I tell you about another thing I've learned? As our firstborn son is about to get married in October and as Deb and I have been driving around more and anticipating that wedding, I cannot tell you how many times I've said to my wife, how many times I failed as a dad. How many things I regret. How many missed opportunities? How many times I lost my temper when I should have instructed? How many times I put work ahead of him? How many times I chose to gratify my flesh instead of investing in him? Oh, I want to think that I've been a good dad all because of the grace of God. But my oldest can tell you all of my hypocrisies, failures and inconsistencies and if it came down to just a contest Brandon could testify of ways I have failed him as a dad long and hard but that's not what the passage calls for 
You see, you can still show mercy and grace as children or grandchildren. You can still show the gospel to maybe parents that were less than ideals, to those who are watching. You can still be kind and caring and loving and honoring to those whom God used to create you. For in doing this, God also used your circumstances to save you and to show himself to you. And in turn, God may very well be calling you to display that grace to your parents first. You know my life. When I look at my life, my parents were wonderful parents, but I'm an only child. All kinds of foster kids. I suffered many things sexually and physically and emotionally, all under the roof of my parents' house, all of which they didn't know was going on. If I wanted to, I could be selfish, but all of those things God used to shape the man that's here today and my parents And because my parents failed doesn't mean I can say, no, since you screwed up in an area of my life, I don't have to treat you with dignity, honor, and respect. Folks, church, listen. What if Jesus ever did that to us? Said, okay, I'm going to treat you based on your performance. Remember, you can never make him love you more. You can never make him love you less. He loves you. And it's not based on you. It's out of the abundance of him. That's what that whole video and imputation means. It's not just that God saved you and erased all your sins. No, because of Jesus, he erased all your sins and then he took all of Christ's obedience and all of his perfection and all of his rightness and he credited all of that to you and I. So when God the Father, holy, 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 looks at you and I, he not only sees forgiven, but then he also sees justified. You've been given all of the perfection and righteousness of Christ and wouldn't you know it, I'm all out of time. But I do think this is a great way for us to segue into the table of the Lord. I want to ask you, one of my burdens for people that maybe have grown up in homes, I find that when we think about being a family, you can think about God in two different ways. If you grew up in a wonderful family where family was everything, you can sometimes view your family as an idol and God is only the means by which you look. You look at him through the filter of that family and you, you see him as kind of a tag on instead of the means and the ends of everything about your life. But if you came from a family where maybe you didn't have a mom or you didn't have a dad or the family relationship wasn't good, then you, you kind of project that failure or that hurt or that lack and then you doubt God that way. Now listen, Jesus Christ brings us to the perfect father who loves us just as we are and loves us so much not to leave us as we are, but he's patient and kind and gentle and he has a plan. And so we're going to come and celebrate the table of the Lord this morning. And I want to remind you of something very quickly. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 18 says this, He being Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Why? For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created. Now listen to this. Created through him, and then notice these two words, and for him. Folks, I need you to realize as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, Jesus did not come into the world for us. He came into the world for Jesus. We must not quickly skim over those words created through him and for him. They deserve our deepest meditation and our most prayerful consideration.
Jesus is the reason for God's creating and redeeming activity. The decision for Jesus Christ to become flesh was not simply God's response to the foresight of our fall. One man puts it that Jesus should enter the world as the Redeemer because of man's sin ends up suggesting, subjecting Christ to us when in fact we must be subject to him in all things. Jesus is not an accidental identity, some sort of plan B that God concocted because Adam and Eve didn't get it right. The decree for the God-man occurred as part of God's original, eternal plan. Be ever, before God ever said, let there be light in Genesis 1, the plan of salvation was already put in place. Redemption, which we have only through Christ, is still inferior compared with the worth and glory of his person. The great Puritan Stephen Charnock rightly claimed this. He said, There's so, there is something in Christ more excellent and comely than just the office of a Savior. The greatness of his person is more excellent than the salvation accured, procured by his death. The glory of his person outweighs even the glory of his work on our behalf. However, whoever he is enabled to do what no man is capable of, die in the place of a multitude of sinners, we praise him first for who he is, and second, for what he accomplished. So as we come to the table of the Lord today, let's make sure it's not just about, well, I praise him because he died to save me. That's what he did. May we praise him for who he is. He is the eternal son of God. That's why what he did counts. Again, as we come to the table of the Lord, don't be in love with Jesus' stuff. Be blessed by his stuff. Be in love with Jesus Christ, our Savior.